Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I dislike greatly what's the ask. Ask is a verb, it's not a noun. I dislike greatly incentivize. Incentive is a noun, not a verb. So most of those things like that, I do not like. John Moritsugu doesn't like corporate jargon. He thinks a moving company calling itself a logistics solutions provider is ridiculous. But if that kind of jargon is so annoying, why do so many of us use it? Hi, I'm Paul Havertrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Hemingway once wrote, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. But what if he'd written, our learnings after reaching a pain point allow us to pivot our mission-critical solutions on a go-forward basis? A farewell to arms might have been a farewell to book sales. Am I right? Also today, applying for a job takes work. You get your application in, references, then you wait. If you don't hear back, you figure someone else got it. But what if that job wasn't even real? Later, the rise of ghost jobs. Up first, cryptocurrency wonderkin Sam Bankman-Fried was once worth $15 billion. Now, he's been found guilty of fraud and he's going to jail. So what does the fall of a crypto rock star mean for the crypto industry? If you haven't been following the rise and fall of Sam Bankman-Fried, here's the Coles notes. Boy genius leaves Wall Street, starts a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX. He woos billions from investors, parties with celebrities, and promises to legitimize the Wild West of crypto. It turns out he was running a big scam. He was just convicted of fraud and conspiracy, and he's going to jail. So what does the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried mean for the cryptocurrency industry? Zeke Fox is an investigative reporter at Bloomberg and the author of Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. So Zeke, you watched every minute of this trial when the verdict came down, what was your first thought? It definitely wasn't surprise. I mean, the evidence the prosecution presented has been overwhelming. We saw all of Sam's top lieutenants, one after one, come in and say, in effect, hey, I did a big fraud. I'm really sorry. And I did it with that guy over there. And then we heard Sam testify in his own defense 
and he didn't really present a great alternative theory. And when cross-examined, he just had to rely on, I don't recall. So I wasn't surprised. And as much as it's always, it seemed clear to me that this was a fraud, that Sam was guilty and that it was appropriate that he was facing these charges. Uh, you know, you couldn't help but be a bit sad to see, I mean, his parents are right in the courtroom. They're clearly devastated. And Sam's uh, someone who I've spent a lot of time with. And no matter, maybe it's a weird thing on my part, but no matter what I think about what he's done, it's still kind of sad to imagine that he'll be uh, in prison likely for decades. And, and you spend time with him. Uh, is he a good dude? I mean, obviously, no, due to the stealing the money thing. Um, when things were going well, and when he was meeting with a reporter like me, he had kind of a strange charm. And I mean, because one thing reporters love is when people answer their questions. And you could ask this guy almost anything, and he would think about your question and give you a real answer. Now, we now know many of those answers were lies, but wouldn't you rather get a lie than a scripted talking point? <laughs> a custom lie just for you, responsive to your real question? So he won over a lot of reporters on his way up. But uh, we've also learned at the trial from the testimony of his friends and his ex-girlfriend that maybe he could turn on his weird charm for reporters. But when dealing with even people he was very close with, he could be a real jerk. He, they talked about him being a bully. They said at different times they were afraid of him, didn't want to talk to him about business issues that were on their mind. Um, so I think his, uh, you know, the friendly persona he put on for reporters was also kind of a lie. You know, so, so Sam Bangman fried was on trial, clearly, but it also seemed like he was standing in for the sins of the industry. Was cryptocurrency on trial here? So I believe that this trial was not really a referendum on crypto because I think that the referendum has already been held and crypto lost. Like almost every coin collapsed. Uh, tons of the biggest companies in crypto have been accused of fraud. It's not just Sam. He's not the bad apple. It's like a whole sack of rotten apples. You just don't even put your hands in the sack. It's gross. So um, I think that that said, I do think that all this publicity around Sam's trial has tarnished the reputation of crypto even further. And that let's say, you know, six months from now, someone who maybe hasn't paid a lot of attention to all this hears from a friend about some new coin and their friend says, oh, maybe you should invest in this new coin. I mean, isn't that person going to think, oh, crypto, oh, yeah, that's the thing that curly-haired guy used to, like, rob us all. You know, like, I think people are going to have some pause before jumping into crypto again after, uh, after hearing all this. You know, some cryptocurrency loyalists, real backers, adherents to crypto, when the guilty verdict came down, you saw that they were happy about it. They were kind of cheering it. Why was that? 
I think by cheering it, it's a way to try to distance themselves from Bankman Freed and to say that, oh, they're different. Their coin is cool. They have nothing to do with scammers like Bankman Freed. Um, but I mean, this guy was the he was the face of crypto. He was the most prominent person in the industry. He was down in Washington lobbying for new rules that would have uh, sort of brought crypto into the light and given it more of a solid legal footing in the US. And yeah, some people in crypto didn't like him the whole time because Sam was never really like a, a true believer. He always presented as kind of a crypto skeptic who just happened to run like a crypto exchange. But um, I think that the crypto industry was pretty happy to throw their lot in with Sam on the way up. And, you know, it's natural they would try to distance themselves from him now. Can, can you tell us more about Sam Bankman-Fried? I mean, how was he able to to really dupe like so many money managers, these people who are supposed to be sophisticated investors? You know, when things are going great, all these things that like in hindsight were total red flags, they just are seen as like, marks of genius. And so when he was pitching Sequoia Capital, like a big venture capital firm, when they found out that he was playing League of Legends while he was pitching them, they didn't think, oh man, this guy's like a real jerk. He has no respect. He he doesn't care about social norms. Maybe he'd push the limits in other bad ways too. Instead, they were like, wow, cool. This guy, he cares so little about the traditional financial world that he'll play video games while he talks to us. Like, let's give him another $5 billion. On the more serious side, he came from Wall Street. He had experience at this really respected trading firm, Drain Street Capital. And even though, you know, he looked like a slob, he looked like a, you know, college kid who just pulled an all-nighter, he spoke this Wall Street language because these big money people, they didn't want to invest in some crypto zealot who really thought that like he'd invented this magic internet money that was going to the moon. They wanted like a Wall Street guy who could kind of see that there was, you know, there was a bubble going on and who had like a reasonable plan to profit from it. And that's what they thought they had in Sam. He was like, I'm not one of these crazy gamblers who's just going to throw it all on Dogecoin. Meanwhile, he was doing exactly that at his hedge fund and he was using, and when people sent money to his exchange, FTX, he was just funneling that money to the hedge fund and throwing it all into these crazy gambles. Do you think that what's happened now to SBF then will do anything to sort of this broader idea of the maverick? tech genius in a hoodie, disheveled, but, you know, visionary and sees the world in the ways other people don't. So let's throw money at them. I think that people will, the next uh, tech genius scammer type is going to have a new look. He's ruined the khaki shorts and a t-shirt and curly hair thing for everybody. Um, but I, I, I can imagine that when these venture capital firms now are funding AI companies, they're not that picky about whether the founder presents themselves well or whether they have a full board of directors 
or exactly the best auditor for their financial statements. When there's like a hot new area, people, the same as regular people have this fear of missing out on the next big thing, these big investors do too. And if they are stick in the muds and demand that this founder follows all the rules they want, they might miss out on investing in like the next big startup. So we've got this trial, we've got, it seems like other trials coming up. Do you think this guilty verdict, you know, high profile as it is, will change anything for the crypto industry more broadly? I've seen statements from um, a lot of regulators in the U.S. that are saying this just validates their skepticism. And right now, I mean, the U.S. is the biggest market. And right now, the Securities and Exchange Commission is suing some of the biggest players in crypto. And basically, if the SEC is successful, the market for crypto in the U.S. will be much smaller. And that's going to stymie the growth of the whole industry. Well, Zeke Fox, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Zeke Fox is an investigative reporter at Bloomberg and author of Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On your radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershrude. Here's a mystery. You need a job, check. See a job posting, apply for the job, done. And then, nothing. But you keep seeing the job ad. It doesn't go away. It's called a ghost job. And our producer, Ellis Cho, says they're on the rise. Jordan Pizzuti is a freelance writer based in Ottawa. He's always on the hunt for his next contract. Oh, gosh. Um, over the last probably three months of applying, I've probably applied to maybe uh, 150 places. He finds postings on the usual job sites, like Indeed or LinkedIn. But at least one out of every three times, he doesn't hear back. Not even an automated response. Yet those same job postings stay up for months. It's frustrating to be flooded with more fake opportunity than legitimate opportunity. What he calls fake opportunities are also known as ghost jobs. A ghost job posting, if you will, is just sort of one that um, either never gets filled or is never intentioned to get filled. It is sort of one that's just sitting there and, and uh, you know, isn't really leading to an increase in employment. Lisa Simon is the chief economist at Revelio Labs, a company that tracks labor market data around the world. She says the number of ghost jobs in Canada has doubled over the past two years. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting phenomenon. I think what it actually is showing uh, is that 
employers are really having a hard time finding the, the right talent. But um, I think fundamentally, it really points to a labor shortage. Especially in industries like hospitality and construction, where there's high turnover. She says the job postings stay up because companies are always looking. But there's another reason. Some employers use ghost job postings as a way to scout talent. It's, it's fairly cheap for employers to have an open posting and basically keep it up and just collect um, potential candidates. It doesn't cost much for companies to keep their ads up. But for job seekers, it's a waste of time. And more of them are complaining about it online. Lisa says the number of people posting about ghosting has jumped by nearly 200% over the past five years. Cece Pau is the head of Clear HR Consulting. She says this trend is bad for job seekers, but it's not a great look for companies either. It doesn't necessarily help an employer's brand if either they have a perpetual posting that never gets filled or they're just posting jobs and they never respond to the candidates that apply to them. CC advises businesses to post jobs only for positions that exist and to take them down as soon as they're filled. For job seekers, she has this advice. Be cautious. If you look at the job posting, what's the posting date? Have you gone to that company's website to see if the job posting is on their website? Because if it's not, there's a higher likelihood that that's not a legitimate posting. Jordan Pizzuti has gone one step further. He started taking the direct approach. I've definitely had more success just reaching right out to employers themselves and saying, hey, this is who I am, this is what I do. And I was fortunate enough to kind of get my foot in the door at a couple places and start to build a, a rapport with people that way. Even in an online world, the personal touch still matters. For The Cost of Living, I'm Ellis Cho. Listening to corporate types speak is kind of like listening to anyone else, except not really. Like, here's Google's CEO answering a question on a recent conference call. The sharper the technology curve is, we get excited by it because I think uh, we have built world-class capabilities in taking that and then driving down costs sequentially and then deploying it at scale. Uh, Sundar Pichai said technology curve, world-class, at scale, and driving down costs sequentially in less than 15 seconds. Every day, in countless emails and conversations, people are circling back and leveraging synergies. Corporate jargon. You don't just hear it at the office. It bleeds into everyday life. Maybe you've stuck a pin in something, been proactive, or got back to someone by EOD. End of day. And people love to complain about jargon. They say it's word salad. But if jargon is so worthless, why do so many of us use it? I had an editor who just 
hated it when he saw the word grow used incorrectly. He'd stand up in the newsroom and say out loud to no one in particular, how are you going to grow profits? Pour water on them? Add fertilizer? That guy was... John Moritsugu. I worked at Dow Jones from 1981 to 2010. John was the managing editor of a financial news outlet for nearly 30 years. In that time, how many press releases did he read? Oh, man. Uh, easily more than 100 a day. So I could try to do the math. Like a million? If you read a million press releases, you see a lot of business jargon. And for John, it did lead to some key learnings. A particular uh, annoyance of mine is verbs that become nouns and nouns that become verbs. I dislike greatly what's the ask. Ask is a verb, it's not a noun. I dislike greatly incentivize. Incentive is a noun, not a verb. So most of those things like that, I do not like. Like it or not, every day, company after company sent out press releases. Almost all of them would include a sentence at the end describing what it did. It's called the boilerplate. And it forced John to slog through a lot of jargon. Every single company had the word solutions in the boilerplate. We are a logistics solutions provider. No, you're a moving company. You know, say, say what you are. Don't try to make it all fancy and, and uh, highfalutin, especially the tech companies. You could read their boilerplate and you would have no idea what it is they did. But we had a hell of a time trying to make our own boilerplate out of their boilerplate because we always did at the end of a story. We would say if the company did or somewhere in the story. And many times you just had no idea what they were talking about. Eric Anisich has studied jargon, when it's useful and when it's not. He's a professor at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business. Unlike slang, which is used socially, jargon is used in professional settings. And it's also different than technical language. If there's no other way to say it, you know, then, then fine. That's not jargon. That's just a technical term that is uh, the only way to say it. Um, jargon is... Uh, you, you could say the same thing in a way that's more easily accessible to a broader audience, but you choose not to. You choose to use... Part of what makes jargon jargon is the choice to say something one way when another way is easier to understand. Instead of work together, you say synergize. So why use jargon at all? Eric says, in general, we have two motives when we talk to other people. The first one is clarity, right? It's not surprising that people want to effectively convey their meaning or their intended meaning to an audience. Then, you know, I think jargon is a fine way to communicate, you know, complex things. You know, some pieces of jargon are like, a, you know, are just like in your tool belt. And okay, well, in this situation, I know I need this piece of jargon tool, uh, you know, this linguistic tool that I can just throw at the problem and, and it will solve it. Sure, circle back might be a cliche, but if you're not trying to win a Pulitzer, it's fast and it gets the job done. But getting our meaning across clearly isn't the only reason we communicate. 
Language is used to not only convey the literal meaning of words, but also to signal something about the speaker and their actual or desired position in some sort of social system or hierarchy. It's kind of similar to why someone might buy a fancy sports car, for example, right? It signals that that person is successful and wealthy, let's say. Um, and you may have heard of this phrase in the context of consumer behavior, this idea of conspicuous consumption, where you buy a sports car because you want to signal something about yourself. And I think of jargon similarly. It's almost like a form of conspicuous communication that people use to compensate for feelings of insecurity or, or low status. Someone could use jargon to try to fit in or as a way to build themselves up. The lower you are in the hierarchy, the more likely you are to use jargon. The people lower in status tend to be more motivated by how they will be evaluated by their audience than the higher status people who care more about communication clarity. If you're just starting a job and want to show you get it, then using a shared language is one way to do that. But jargon also has a darker side. It can be used to deliberately distort meaning. Think about the euphemisms for layoffs. Even the term layoff is a euphemism. Downsizing, right-sizing, delayering kind of sounds like a spa treatment, like it's not going to hurt, but... Employees who are being laid off obviously understand that they're being laid off, regardless of how that is packaged up and communicated to them. I mean, the consequences of, of receiving that message are so clear, and yet the message itself is very unclear. And so I think that, you know, that's also frustrating for employees because they clearly understand they're not going to be working there anymore. Um, but the message suggests almost like it's not this terrible thing. It's just, you know, you're, uh, you know, minorly inconvenienced by not being in a go forward role. When a company uses a word like delaying, it distances itself from the human side of someone losing their job. Eric Anisich says this happens everywhere. We're surrounded by language that obscures what's really being said. Jargon just kind of creeps into all aspects of life because, I mean, so much of our life is wrapped up in our work. I think it was just two days ago, I was watching the news on television and, and the anchor was interviewing a law enforcement analyst and they were talking about an unsolved crime and the law enforcement analyst talked about needing to get items of evidentiary value and needing to catalog those to include in the investigative pathway. I mean, basically what this person was saying on television was the police need to collect evidence to try to solve this crime, right? Which is what the police would do for any unsolved crime. I mean, the person communicated nothing of value and they did so in an incredibly long-winded way. So yeah, jargon can go wrong, but it also contains multitudes. It can be efficient shorthand, lazy writing, a status signifier, and as much as it does bug people like John Moritsugu, I recognize that language evolves and that many things that we say today, people 100 years ago would say, how can you possibly say that? I'm okay with language evolving, but the things that bother me bother me. And, you know, there you go. Well, John, at the very least, know this. At the cost of living, we'll grow crops, we'll grow a beard, but we will never grow profits. We'd also like to loop you in on an action item. Do you have a favorite or least favorite piece of corporate jargon? Please 
bring it to the table because we want to drill down. Our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. And if you call or write, we'll enter you to win a Cost of Living mug. How's that for a win-win? That's the show for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.